finishing up Matthew, we've had a kind of circuitous route. We've taken Matthew in 11 sections, and 26 to 27 is the last section. Um, and I just wanted to zero in on these scriptures uh, about Jesus' crucifixion tonight. Remember in chapters 23 through 25, Jesus gives this sermon from the, the Mount of Olives. It's a sermon about the judgment getting ready to come on Jerusalem. Uh, he has consistently through his ministry called the leaders of the people of God, uh, the priests uh, in the temple to repentance, called them into his kingdom and away from their way of pursuing God's purposes, namely, among other things, a militant way of trying to throw Rome off. And Jesus has prophesied in 25 that judgment is coming on Jerusalem. He is a new Jeremiah. Just as Jeremiah said, the Babylonians are coming and they're going to tear down this temple. Jesus said the Romans are coming and they're going to tear down this temple. And he invited all of his listeners to escape that judgment by following him and his way, uh, by following his teachings. And of course, very few followed his teachings. What's most important to notice is Jesus predicts judgment on Jerusalem. He predicts exile for the people of God. And in chapters 26 and 27, he himself submits to that very same exile. He preaches this judgment that God is going to bring at the hands of the Romans. And then he himself enters into that very judgment. Not because he deserves it, but because his people deserve it. And it's just so that anyone who would take refuge in him can avert the same kind of judgment and the same kind of exile. So in these chapters, Jesus embraces that exile. There's a phrase that comes up 15 times. It's translated variously, but it says that Jesus is handed over. The guards hand him over to the priests. The, the Sanhedrin hands him over to the Romans. Jesus gets passed around like a hot potato. He is, he's like an object. But remember that he willingly makes himself such. Jesus is not, he is a victim, but he's not a victim. He's not a victim that did not decide to do this. It's important that as we read these passages, we see Jesus reigning. We see Jesus knowing all along what he was headed for and going clear-eyed into the judgment that he's experiencing. This is what it looks like for Jesus, the Son of God, to reign among sinful humanity. One day we will see what it looks like for Jesus to reign in the midst of a people who trust him and unveiled as he truly is. But for him to reign and rule in the midst of a sinful humanity, it looks like crucifixion. It looks like suffering on the cross. I want to up front just mention something that I think is perennial among Christians, and that is that we often have anxiety about what we ought to do as Christians. We ought to do. We have this sense of oughtness. And in a way, that's right. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is about what God does for us, not what we do for him. And we must Soak up what he has done for us. We must let our roots sink down deeply into what he has done for us. We must embrace what he has done for us. These chapters have nothing to do with us in so much as they give us a command. More than anything, they show us the gospel. They show us what Jesus has done for us. 
At the end of the sermon, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. And one of the joys of reciting the Apostles' Creed, have you noticed? It, it doesn't tell us what to do. It tells us what God has done in Jesus and by the gift of the Spirit. It declares to us the gospel. We cannot serve Jesus, and we are indeed called to serve him, but we cannot serve him until he washes our feet. Until he washes our feet in the gospel. So tonight there's no pragmatic application that I'm going to give to the text. Only receiving the gospel. Only believing the gospel. Only letting it go down deep into our hearts so that we respond out of this truth. I do not deserve it, but I am loved by God in Christ. That is who I am. So starting with verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. This is probably about 600 soldiers. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped the robe off him and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. In Mel Gibson's Passion, I don't know what year that was, but Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, I don't know how many people have seen it, but it's a hard thing to watch because it is gory and it is detailed and it goes into great detail of all the stages of Jesus' physical suffering. I don't know if you noticed it when we read but the gospel doesn't linger on his pain and his physical suffering. What it lingers on is the mockery. It lingers on the shame of the mockery. Everybody is mocking Jesus. It wants us to draw our attention not so much to the blood and gore as much as to this mocking. God, Paul says, is not mocked. But here, God is mocked. He is mocked incessantly by the soldiers, by the people, by the leaders of the people of Israel. And to get a sense of this, I don't know if you have ever been bullied. If you've ever been bullied, you get a small sense of what Jesus was going through here. This was bullying in the worst sense. And maybe even more, if you've ever been a bully yourself, you've been on the other side of it, you get a sense of what's going on here. And one of the things I want to draw our attention to in all of these verses is that the irony piles up and multiplies. There's irony after irony, and I'll illustrate what I mean. They mean to deride and mock Jesus, but guess what they do? They speak the truth about him. Right? They're mocking him. That They're sick of the Jews and all of their rebellions, and they're sick of this guy, and they're mocking him. Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And guess what they do? They speak the truth. See the irony? And these are just going to pile up. They mean to deride Jesus, but they speak the truth. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the world that will one day sit in judgment on them. God the Father, they give him this, this reed as a mock scepter. But one day God the Father will extend Jesus' scepter out over his enemies. And Jesus will reign. All will bow before him in acknowledgement of his authority, just as those Roman soldiers did in mockery of Jesus. So even those who oppose Jesus all through this section, they preach the gospel. He is the king of the Jews. They are hailing him. They don't mean it, 
but they are prophesying unbeknownst to them. The scripture tells us that a man hanged on a tree is cursed. And the irony is that it is that very man hanged on a tree, cursed, who brings blessing to all who take refuge in him. The paradoxes and the ironies are here at every turn. The more they oppose Jesus, the more they wind up fulfilling the the gospel and speaking the truth. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Imagine you're Simon. Maybe you're in Jerusalem to worship. Libya is where he's from. Cyrene is is modern day Libya. And all of a sudden, these Roman soldiers who are probably known as bullies all over the empire pull you aside and make you carry the crossbeam of this condemned man's cross. Church tradition says that Simon had two sons who were Christians. And there's a lot of thought that probably this Simon, though forced to carry Jesus' cross, was so impressed with what he saw, so captured by what he saw, that he himself became a believer. He carried Jesus' literal cross. And by the way, his name, I think, is maybe a significant thing. His name is Simon. Does that remind you of another Simon? Simon Peter, who ought to be here. He probably ought to be the one carrying it. But this Simon of Cyrene is so compelled by what he sees in this man of sorrows that he himself later became a believer. Verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So Golgotha, place of the skull, place of execution. It was outside of the city. Place of bones. This reminds me of Ezekiel. If you remember, Ezekiel has this great vision where he goes into a valley of skeletons. And the bones are very dry. And God says, son of man, can these bones live? And I think that question resonates in the back of this because Jesus is getting ready to go into death from which no one comes back. And the question resonates. And remember what Ezekiel said. You alone know, O Lord. We're going to find out that God does indeed know that these bones can live. They give him... They give him wine mixed with gall, and he refuses to drink it, probably because it has something bitter in it, or maybe even because it has something poisonous in it. But at any rate, in it, he detects more mocking. He detects maybe an evasion of the suffering that he's about to go under, and Jesus wants to be clear-headed. Verse 5. And when they had crucified him, there it is. Did you catch it? That's 15 minutes of Mel Gibson's The Passion. And we're not even done with the sentence. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Again, Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time lingering on the physical torment. What he does focus on, again, is that Jesus is mocked. And remember that the cross, among many other things, is all about shame. I've never seen a painting of the crucifixion that has it as it ought to be, which is Jesus totally naked, totally exposed totally shamed in front of everyone and lifted up high. He was stripped absolutely naked. Verse 36. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. I want you to imagine that scene. They've sat down. They've done their work. Jesus is stretched out in agony on the cross. And they sit down watching and probably drinking and gambling. It says they go on to gamble. They're having a grand old time while Jesus is there on the cross dying for them, dying for us. 
And they keep watch. Why did they have to keep watch? Nothing was going to deter Jesus from going to this cross. Nothing was going to deter Jesus from following the Father's will to the end and dying for us. Verse 37. And over his head, they put this charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Once again, can you detect the irony? They put up this sign in total mockery. They put up this sign in spite. And they're right. They preach the gospel even with their spite. You remember when Paul says in Philippians, these people with bad motives that are preaching because they want to cause me trouble, I rejoice because the gospel is still preached. I think I understand that better now. Because these soldiers, uh, Pilate himself, he meant this as a mockery, and he is speaking the truth. The very man who says in John, what is the truth? Winds up declaring the truth as he puts this sign over the cross. The gospel can be preached and often is by those who even oppose Jesus. Because the gospel cannot be stopped. And that's worth thinking about right now in our day and time. I know our country and the world is in a bad way. But you know what? I have greater confidence in the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It has turned the world upside down before and it can again. People that oppose Jesus can preach the gospel. You remember when the crowds, uh, the crowd, Pilate washes his hands. Remember, he says, I washed my hands. This, this man's blood is not on me. And the crowd say, his blood be us on us and on our children. Once again, they're speaking something of the truth. The blood of Jesus is invited to be on everybody as a cleansing that comes with repentance. Or it will be on every one of us in judgment, in responsibility for the blood of Jesus spilled. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Picture it. You've seen it in countless paintings and movies. Two criminals, arms stretched out on either side of Jesus in the middle. Hopefully it reminds you of something. Hopefully it reminds you a little bit of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a kind of grotesque parody of the Ark of the Covenant. But you'll remember the Ark of the Covenant had two angels with their wings spread out on it. And remember also that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't really an image. It wasn't really a, a, something to worship. It was the seat of God, the throne of God. Think of the Ark of the Covenant and those angels like an empty frame. All right, pagans never understood. Why did the Jews not have an image of their God? Everybody has an image of their God. The Jews have this blank. But here in this grotesque parody of the ark, we finally get an image of God. We get the revelation of God. We get the most clear, the most powerful, the most important, the most succinct declaration to mankind of what God is between this parody of the ark of the covenant with Jesus crucified. Paul said, I determined to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because God's character, his heart, his nature is most clearly manifest in that cross. This is the closest we come to a clear explanation of who God is. Verse 39. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, 
you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Three groups are outlined here mocking Jesus, just as there were three temptations by Jesus, by the devil of Jesus in the wilderness. There's those who pass by that mock him. There's the religious leaders of all kinds. And finally, the criminals on either side of Jesus, they all mock him. And notice what the first group says, save yourself, save yourself. Hopefully that calls to mind what Jesus has said throughout the gospel. If any man would save his life, let him lose it. If any man would lose his life for my sake, he will find it. Jesus did not come to save his life. That's precisely why he came, not to save his life, but to give up his life to save ours. And so their call to say, save, save yourself, is a call to damn themselves. They don't understand what they're asking. They don't understand what they're saying. And notice then they say, if you are the son of God. When have we heard that before? That's what Satan said to Jesus repeatedly in the temptations in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, and obviously the insinuation is you're not the son of God. Those are Satan's words. They say, come down. Well, he did come down from heaven, but not to save his life. He came down to lay his life down for our sake. Verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Again, almost every utterance that comes out of their mouth is a declaration of the truth. Almost everything they say preaches the truth about the gospel to us, even here. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Precisely. Exactly. He saved others. He can't save himself. That has been his mission from the beginning. Not to save himself, but to save others. He trusts God. Let him deliver him now. Faith, I think, never says now. Faith never demands now. Faith trusts God's promises. Trusts that God will fulfill all that he has promised in his time. And God does deliver Jesus from the grave. But it's not now. It's after he has fully gone into the Father's will and fully gone into the grave. Demand for a sign so that they will believe is always disingenuous. I don't know if you've ever heard in debates or something, uh, atheists will be like, if there's a God, he should come and prove it and you know, strike me down with lightning right now. It's a guarantee they don't really want to believe in God. Demand for proof. Demand for God to do something to prove himself is disingenuous. Now, I don't say that a desire for confirmation or for understanding is disingenuous, but demand for God to prove himself on terms that we set, that's prideful and disingenuous. But again, they, they continue to preach. The last words that the leaders of the people of God say in this section, their last words quote Jesus 
when Jesus says, I am the son of God. All right, it's the supremest irony. Those who are responsible for having Jesus condemned and crucified, the last thing they, says is the, they say is the truth, that Jesus said, I am the son of God. Finally, the whole scene. The whole scene is an ironic coronation. It's the court of the king. The cross is his throne from which he's ruling. The crowds that are mocking him are his people. The thieves are his angels. The leaders are his vice rulers. And all of their mocking, again, ironically, speaks the truth of the gospel. And again, I think all this underlines what Paul says in Corinthians. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And when you oppose it, you wind up being an instrument in his hands to declare the truth. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This is high noon. All right. The sixth hour is noon. And at noon, the point is, at the brightest point of the day, it is absolutely dark. Jesus is the word of the Father through whom the creation was made, through whom the lights were made, through whom everything was made. And as he dies on the cross, creation is coming undone. The one who created the world is dying, and so the light that he created fails. At about the ninth hour, so three hours later, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be utterly forsaken is one of our great fears. I think it's one of the deepest fears we have as humans to be totally forsaken. To not have a friend, to not have a family, to have no one that will receive us or welcome us. And I think similarly, one of our greatest desires is to be known and welcomed. Known and received. And notice in the cross, Jesus enters our very deserving God-forsakenness. We, we, we fear being forsaken, but we deserve it. And Jesus entered into our forsakenness before God. And it is precisely in that act that we find welcome. Here's what the gospel does. The welcome that the gospel gives is not a naive and sentimental welcome. Does everybody know what I mean? Oh, I love you. You're great. But a naive welcome that doesn't recognize who I am and what I'm capable of and what I've done is not a welcome that knows me. It's naive. But the gospel gives a welcome that says, I know precisely who you are and precisely what you're capable of and precisely what you have done. And I have experienced the forsakenness that you deserve so that you could come to me and so that you could come to the Father. Jesus, the one who sees the worst and experiences the worst we deserve, is the one who experienced rejection so that we could be welcomed. Verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
Notice that Jesus yields up his spirit. Remember, I said that Jesus has been in charge the whole time, that he has been uh, fully aware of what was going to happen and deliberately choosing it. Remember in Gethsemane, he said, Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus knew what he was headed for. And in the end, though he's crucified, he yields up his life. He gives up his life on our behalf. He is in charge. He is both the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful king in David's line, and the slaughtered lamb, whose reign is best expressed in laying down his life for his subjects. And notice what it says there at the end. He yielded up his spirit. I don't think that just means Jesus died. I think it means he yielded up the Holy Spirit. His death was so that the Holy Spirit could be given to us because of the forgiveness that comes from his death. Remember in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is pierced in the side, water and blood flow out. His death, his giving up of his life on our behalf, engraces us with the living water of the Holy Spirit, the anointing oil that we sang about, the anointing oil that that, uh, anoints Aaron's head. So again, the Gospel is about what God has done for us knowing full well who we are and what we've done and what we're capable of. And so often in Christian life, again, I think we are driven by maybe trying to fit in, maybe trying to, oh, okay, this is what this church does, so I'm going to do these things so I can fit in. Or we're just driven by all the things we constantly think, oh, I ought to do this, I ought to do that. I want to suggest that one of our most important tasks as Christians is to continually start from I am loved despite who I am. That we should constantly start from the deepest place of receiving the love of God on the cross. Not just as information that we acknowledge, but as something that more and more softens our heart. Amen? I think if we do that, we will be some of the most alive, active, zealous people around doing some of the most amazing works. But it doesn't start because we're trying to we're trying to work on our reputation with God. It starts because we begin to take on this identity of I am loved and we know it in our bones. Amen. I want to end with a quote that says that much better than I just said it. This is from a guy named Adolf Sapir. You can ask me more about him if you want to at the end. Start daily and often with the joy of God's salvation and end always with the praise of God. Begin with the gospel, the glad tidings of God's love in Christ. Say to yourself, he first loved me. I've obtained mercy. God has given me Christ. Let your heart first be established by grace. Rejoice in the Lord. Do not think of giving unto God until you have received from him. I'm going to say that again. Do not think of giving unto God until you have received from him. And let no sense of your unworthiness prevent you taking hold of the boundless and all-sufficient grace of God. A sense of divine love will keep you more humble, more loving, more active and fervent in service than anything else. This is the only starting point of the Christian life, the assurance of God's love through faith in Christ. Amen? Amen.